Well, we're all trying to get away these days. Uh, COVID is settling down, but important to take a second and be prepared for the unexpected when traveling. One of the best ways to do that is Air MedCare Network Fly You Home membership. AMCN Fly You Home is all about taking control of your care. If you get hurt or sick and are hospitalized, more than 150 nautical miles from home, they will transport you to a hospital of your choice in a medically equipped private aircraft, and you won't have to pay a dime out of pocket. They've also completed more than 18,000 missions and have over 30 years of experience, so you can expect the industry-leading care while recovering. Now, I know what you're thinking. This has got to cost a lot, but it is as cheap as $134 a year for the entire household. And if you use code Dr. Drew, D-R-D-R-E-W, they'll give you up to a $60 gift card when you join. If you're like me, you like to get out of here and fly, but I cannot recommend the peace of mind you feel with an AMCN Fly You Home membership. Just visit airmedcarenetwork.com. Again, that is airmedcarenetwork.com slash Dr. Drew today and get up to a $60 gift card with code Dr. Drew. Again, that is airmedcarenetwork.com and code Dr. Drew. Hey there, it's Perez Hilton. You might know me from many ways, many things, but I am most proud of being the host of the PHP, the best podcast in the world to get your celebrity news and gossip. If you're not already listening to my show, then this week is definitely your time to start. I'm talking to former beauty queen, Miss California herself, and somebody that I have quite the past with, Carrie Prejean. She was competing in the Miss USA contest when I asked her that infamous question about same-sex marriage, and we have a lot of catching up to do. Maybe I apologize, or she forgives me, or who knows how it's gonna go. Listen and subscribe to my podcast, The PHP, with me, Perez Hilton, and Chris Booker every week, with new episodes and juicy news every Monday, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to Dr. Podcast. I want to get right to my guest. I'm very excited to speak to him today. Again, keep the sales in the winds of the Corolla Pirate Ship. Don't forget us at drdrew.tv for the streaming shows and of course after dark at drdrew.com at your mom's house. Uh, the guest today is Matt Ridley. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt with two T's, W Ridley, R I D L E Y. Uh, website is mattridley.co.uk. The book we're going to discuss is available now, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. Uh, Matt, though, has many other books. has sold over a million copies, translated in multiple languages. He has a very um, popularly, popularly viewed TED Talk, which we're going to talk about. And he writes a weekly column in the Times of London and writes regularly for the Wall Street Journal. Viscount Ridley was elected to the House of Lords. Uh, Viscount, welcome to the pro- program. I've never spoken to a Viscount before, I don't believe. <laughs> well, most people don't even know what one is. I, I, I must say, I, I know how to pronounce it. I don't know what it is. Well, I, 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 the last time I saw a Viscount was in uh, Dangerous Liaisons. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think you're probably right there. Well, I, I'm not sure that's uh, a very good description of me at the moment, but anyway. So uh, just so we flesh out uh, Matt's background, he's a doctor of philosophy from Oxford, uh, worked for The Economist for years, uh, Washington correspondent, American editor before coming employed by himself. So Matt, if you wouldn't mind, just the the TED Talk you do uh, or have done, When Ideas Have Sex, can you just sketch that for me so people understand what that was? 
Yeah, um, this w- was based around my book, The Rational Optimist, in which I argued that the world was on the whole getting better, not worse, that there was this extraordinary uh, treadmill of uh, innovation that was driving living standards upwards, almost despite what we do, despite wars and depressions and everything else. And clearly that comes about because human beings in some sense um, are an innovative species and other creatures are not. Why is that? And I think it's because they engage in specialization and exchange. Uh, The more they swap things, the more they can become specialized at what they're good at, and that enables them to become innovative at what they're good at. And so what we've done over human history is we've invented this extraordinary system where each of us does something very narrow and um, specialized and supplies it to lots and lots of other people. And we can then uh, feast upon all the other specialized things that other people do for us. And so there's this this network of collaboration. Uh, and, and the result, uh, you know, uh, the, the most striking result of this is that when you think about it, the simplest object in our lives, and there was a beautiful essay about a pencil that made this point, is not made by an individual person. It's made by hundreds of thousands of people, you know, growing coffee for each other while they cut down trees, where the wood is going to be used to make the pencil in the pencil factory and then marketing the pencil and so on. You know, there's an enormous number of people involved and not one of them knows how to make a pencil. Right. The knowledge doesn't exist inside a human head of how to make a pencil. The knowledge exists between human heads. So it's that process of, um, uh, of, of exchange and specialization. And exchange is playing the same role here uh, in the evolution of human society that sex is playing in the evolution of human biology. It's mixing up the genes. It's mixing up ideas so that ideas can meet and mate and have baby ideas. So so uh, there's a, a lot packed into that. I, I want to just, uh, just parse out a couple of things. Uh, the pencil essay is much like the sailor's coat in Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations, correct? Yes. Uh, and this sounds very much like Adam Smith's observations about economies. You've sort of blown out to include ideas and other forms of exchange, right? In any industry, in lack of a better word. Absolutely. And I, I, I mean, I, my admiration for Adam Smith just goes up and up. Every time I go back and read, read uh, The Wealth of Nations, yeah. I think he's often more acute than people who came after him in understanding what's going on in the world. And, you know, it's an incredibly radical book. And uh, so the the way I put it is that he's looking at the world in a sort of bottom-up way about the emergent properties of, uh, of, of civilization, you know, that we, that we, um, the, the, the economy comes about not because somebody's planning it, but because we're all collaborating and that create, creates a sort of beautiful whole. It's very much the same idea that Darwin had, a century later. So I call Adam Smith's version the general theory of evolution and Darwin's the special theory of evolution. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and so it, it doesn't surprise me you would say that because you were sort of referencing cultural and intellectual memes, weren't you? Isn't that sort of the notion? Or, or, or and, the, and then memes as, I guess it was, was it Hawkins or somebody mentioned this? Richard, Haw- Richard Dawkins, rather. Richard Dawkins. Yeah. He coined, coined the word meme. Yeah. It's, it's a great idea. Um, yeah. And is that what you're talking about? You're talking about cultural memes and ideal means and industrial means. And these are all listen, little monads of information that we can uh, cling on to. 
Yeah, and, and they go extinct sometimes, and they uh, fail to catch on in other occasions, but, other, but sometimes they spread and they displace others. If you, look at, you know, if you look at the English language, for example, it's a man-made phenomenon. It, you know, it's not a natural thing like a rock or a, or a rainforest. Well, careful. It's happening in our brain. That's natural, right? <laughs> um, yeah, but, but the, um, it, it, you know, it, it's obviously invented by people, but it's not invented by one clever person or right. anything like that. Right. It's, it's invented by all of us and reinvented by all of us all the time. Yes. Um, there's a rather wonderful Scottish philosopher called Adam Ferguson who said there are things that are the result of human action, but not the result of human design. Um, so, uh, and I think the English language is a good example of that. I think the internet is a good example of that. Uh, yes, you know, it took a few pioneers to put the internet together to start with, but since then it has evolved with all of us making small contributions to the way it, it changes. Um, and there's nobody in charge. You know, there isn't a committee that 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 tells us how to change the internet. Um, every now and then people try and set up such a committee, but it's usually a flop. Um, and, uh, so I'm, I'm, I just think we don't see the world in a bottom-up enough way. Another beautiful example borrowed from a French philosopher is uh, economist is how does London get fed or how does Paris get fed? You know, there's 10 million people eat lunch every day in Paris, maybe, I don't know, maybe more, maybe less. And um, nobody's in charge of making sure that there's enough of the right food in the right place you know just enough avocados here just enough fish there just enough cheese you know and yet nobody's making up their mind what they want to eat till the last minute you know uh, and how does it happen it's incredible isn't it it's amazing yeah it's amazing and and it's not immediately i i mean adam smith's observations i'm going back to the sailor's coat which, which is he describes in a long essay in one of his not even essays a chapter in his book Wealth of Nations about how the sailor, where the sailor's coat comes from. Somebody's making the butts, the buttons. Someone's making the thread. Someone's the shepherd for the sheep. Someone's shearing the sheep. Someone's weaving the sheep. It's just all these exactly. people, and it's not immediately apparent. This is what I found interesting about this. When he made that observation, it was not immediately apparent that that should be efficient in any way. Right, if you were sitting down as a human being, going, "How would I make a coat?" I go, "Well, I'd buy some cloth, I'd cut it out, and I'd sew everything on." It's like that's how you make a coat, and that's probably the way I'd save the most money is if I did that by myself. No, it turns out that the same thing that puts the uh, escargot on the plates in Paris is the same thing that determines that somebody uh, on a on a sailor's uh, salary, you know, in eighteenth century England can uh, buy a peacoat, right? And right. it's, not, it's the, the, not obvious that they should work like that. Yeah. No, you're right. And and some somebody did try and make wow. a suit from scratch a few years ago. Yeah. yeah they, they said, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rear a sheep. Um, <laughs> I'm going to cut its fleece. I'm going to do all the processes. To yeah. it. I'm going you know, um, to go and dig up the materials that I need to dye it, you know, and yeah. all these kind of things. Yeah. Um, it took him years. I think he had a grant from an art organization or something so to do this. Interesting. The project, yeah. Uh, and it took it took years, and he came out with a really poor suit. <laughs> That's interesting, also. So uh, I'm sorry. A couple more questions before we get on to COVID. Um, you use the word emergence, and that's a very loaded term for me. I'm always trying to understand what it is. What, what do you mean when you say an emergent property? 
What I mean is that uh, it's not something that somebody has set out to achieve. Uh, it has uh, it, it, it has come ar- come about as a as a byproduct of right, and uh, it, and it's something other than the individual parts. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah, it's great. It's it's more exactly. It's, yeah. it's more than the sum of the parts. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, it's it's an almost accidental outcome of people, you know. People are motivated, you know. They are not saying how do we feed Paris, right? They're saying how do I make a living? But out of that comes the feeding of Paris. And and is that the same thing as what you're calling bottom up? Very much so. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. it's part of the same process. Okay. Because I'm not quite sure I have a clear beat on bottom up, other than emergent and local concerns that create emergent properties on a larger scale, a larger stage, so to speak. Yeah, well, you know, this isn't entirely irrelevant to the last two years we've been through. Go. Um, this is uh, how we're going to get into this. Let's go. <laughs> go ahead. Because, because you know, when a pandemic occurs, the reaction of a lot of people is, right, we need people to socially distance so that we can slow the spread of the virus. How do we do that? Well, we tell them to. We order them to stay at home. We order them to do this, that. Can, can I can I stop well, you already? Because I, I, there's a guy named uh, Doctor Brilliant, believe it or not, is his name, and he's a he's a smallpox expert. Have you ever talked to Doctor Brilliant? It's Larry Brilliant, I think is his name. Larry Brilliant. I, yeah. I know his name. Yeah. I don't think I've talked. To him. Well, I've talked to him, and he he said, "Look, I've gone out and studied m- multiple smallpox outbreaks." And here's what happens with humans in this setting of highly contagious, highly deadly infections. You don't need to tell tell them anything. They automatically distance. They automatically stay home. Exactly. Yeah. So the idea of tell people to do something is already possibly even anathema to to good practices. Right. So why didn't we say at the beginning of the pandemic, we need people to to, to separate, to isolate to some degree. What incentives can we put in place to help them do that, yes. to reward them for doing yes. that? Yes, yes. Instead of what, what sticks are we going to hit them with That's to make right. them do that? And they're not because even, they're not even sticks. Hitting them with a- they're, they're more than sticks. They, they were, you know, they were, um, what would yeah. that be? The orders. You know, those were, those were uh, thus saith the Lord or else. Then the yeah, sticks that's came. what I call, I call that top down, and I think we should have been more bottom up about it. Well, okay. So you've now put your finger on something that uh, we've jumped all the way past your book, I think. <laughs> we'll get back to it. But you put your, your finger on something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is what happened to my profession. So I'm, an, I'm a physician. I watched, I watched what happened, and I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen this behavior before. It was astonishing to me what doctors did, particularly in the first six to 12 months of this pandemic. It was, speaking of anathema, it was anathema to, to good practice. And what it was, as I see now in retrospect, is physicians ceded their normal responsibility and decision-making to a central authority. Now, why did they do that? Well, naturally, first of all, first of all, we are a military system, and we are always under the sway of our academic peers, and you know, we we're just used to taking orders and things, and that that's sort of in the system already. But this still was like nothing I'd ever seen. We're prone, also, as I was at the beginning, to say, "Well, listen to the CDC, listen to the leaders of the CDC. They'll they'll tell us, and then we'll actuate what we need to do." But the, the centralization of decision-making in medicine is 
absolutely not suited to to patient outcome. Uh, and and the, and the idea is, you know, we are highly trained to be improvisational and to know the literature and to think for ourselves and to make decisions on behalf of the patient. We're the only ones that making the decisions on behalf of the individual sitting in front of us. Period. That's our that's our responsibility and nothing else. But this idea that we've given up our I, I mean, it's, it's the centralization versus the decentralization. And I remember this happening back in the 90s when, you know, I was, I was practicing 14 hours a day and things. And and there was a lot of regulation starting to come in. And I remember saying back then, hey, if I'm such a shitty physician, send me back for more training. I like training. If I'm not good enough to make these decisions, do you have to regulate me or watch me? Then send me back for more training. No. More regulation, more centralization, and then this pandemic was the really the the ultimate expression of a road we've been heading down for twenty five years. So I'll let you deal with that comment. Well, I think that's a very very interesting comment, um, and I agree with 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 a great deal of it. The, the centralization being the issue here. Um, that uh, you know, for example. You, the medical profession, were told we need ventilators. Everybody needs to be ventilated, yeah. and then that turned out not to be a particularly good um, way of saving the lives of people who got sick with this particular virus. Um, uh, and the 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 capacity for learning by doing mm. um, on the job mm-hmm. uh, that we would need in facing a new disease that we've never seen before yep. was ignored. Yep. You know, Completely. you've got this virus in front of you. We're finding out in the first weeks, it's killing old people, but not young people. Uh, it's killing them by dropping their oxygen levels dramatically, um, even though they, they aren't particularly sort of congested in their lungs, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the, this requires different thought. Um, it's, it's causing thrombosis in them. We didn't expect that. What needs to happen is that doctors on the front line need to, to be um, learning, experimenting, uh, uh, improvising, as you say, and then spreading good practice through their networks Correct. to each other. 100%. And let me and, tell you, and, let me tell you, there was a massive difference because I was acutely watching what was going on. There was a massive difference between my surgical colleagues and my medical colleagues. In oh, that, yes. In, in that surgeons, the, the regulators cannot get involved in the improvisational process of doing a surgery. Surgeons are problem-solving every inch of the way through a surgery and improvising and writing off. They're doing stuff all the time that requires freedom to improvise within the surgical field. So as you soon as this have a thing, commissar in the, in the, you, in the you can't, the they, they would love to trust me, but they can't. <laughs> and so the surgeons were not uh, prone to be under the sway of the centralized authority. And my surgical colleagues were calling me all the time. Like, have you tried this? Have you tried that? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I thought, please do it. Go tell me how it works. The medical guys were frozen in place, frozen. Because the medical men and women have been been under the – they're all employees now and they're all required to follow clinical pathways and, quote, best practices and these things that are just bureaucratic nonsense. And you know, even in the ICUs where they were starting to improvise a little bit, 
the bureaucracy stepped right in. You can't use this. You can't use that. Well, maybe we'll use toxiluzumab one day, but not right now. We don't know about Paxlovid yet. We're going to decide. Why? Why should you decide? And, and so they were all employees. They were all in big hospital systems, and they were all fearful of losing their job, fearful of the mob on social media, fearful of the uh, disdain the, of their academic peers, which also was out of control during the time, and why the academics bought into the nonsense so much is still kind of mysterious to me. But again, I, you've, you've pushed a button here that is very emotional yeah. for me because I, I lived this thing in real time, and it was deeply well, concerning to me. The scientific profession that I think comes out worst from this um, pandemic is the modeling profession. Yeah. I think the mathematical modeling was um, extraordinarily irresponsible because it was mm. focused on worst-case scenarios yep. always. Yep. Um, uh, there's some reason for that, that you know, we don't need to worry so much about the best-case scenarios, but they weren't explicit about that. They kept, they kept allowing their worst-case scenarios to be presented as projections or predictions yes they would they would back off afterwards and say we didn't mean that to be a prediction that was just a you know what if yes um well you can't have it both ways you can't expect to be advising governments on what to do based on a mathematical model and then say afterwards yeah it was wrong but that doesn't matter because it wasn't a prediction yeah um and there are some shocking cases actually you know in the uk here uh, in december the 2021 you know Pretty late in the pandemic, we had the the mathematical modelers saying Omicron is going to be devastating. Well, but now, Millions now, not, not just any mathematical modelers. It was the same Oxford group that effed right. everything up all the way through. And it was a particular guy. What's his name? Professor Neil uh, Ferguson. At Ferguson. I mean, my God. Yeah. My God. Why do, and, and, I mean, and he's I, never been right on anything. He has, he has a track record of bad predictions yeah. in multiple pandemics. Why is anyone listening to that guy? And I mean, I crossed swords with him uh, actually in Parliament uh, about this because I said, "Look, you know, in Sweden, you predicted a huge number of your yes. your models predicted yes. a huge number of deaths." And yes. He said, "We we never predicted anything in Sweden." Uh. I said, "I know, but but a university used your model." No, they didn't. So I, oh. I thought, oh, well, maybe I'm wrong. I went and looked it up, and they, you know, they very explicitly said this is the Ferguson model we're using. Adapted it to Sweden, of course, and it's it's predicting ninety thousand deaths, and they've only had five thousand. You know, oh. I mean, it was. Um, uh, you know, it, it, the, 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 the idea that just because you can write a mathematical equation, you are going to be able to foretell the future is, I'm afraid, up there with, with astrology. You know, it's, yes. it's a dangerous myth. Um, and the reason, you, you know, you can write a mathematical uh, equation that models the uh, um, seasons, you know, the, the, the fact that this, the days are getting longer in the summer and shorter in the winter. You know, there are some things that are predictable, yes. but multi-causal, emergent property, um, uh, dynamic systems like an epidemic, like an economy, um, like the weather, are predictable only at very short intervals, you yes. know, only a short distance ahead. And the reason is obvious. Once people start getting sick with a dangerous virus, they change their behavior. Of course. Amazingly, the modelers have just admitted that they never put that into their main models. Wow. Amazing. I also, I did not like that they did not really emphasize their uh, confidence intervals. Because I, I don't mind Happy. predictions as long as it's in the context of probabilities and, and let us an, analyze that. Then 
the real villain in this is not even them so much as the press. The press taking these things as thus saith the Lord. And, and that, and then you have on this continent organizations like the New York Times editorial board demanding medical policy. People who just learned to say the words associated with these medical processes now dictating policy. Mind blowing. Exactly. Mind blowing. We've had, yeah. We've had the same with the BBC in, 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 in this country. And, um, uh, the, 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 the media has always had a, a much greater fascination with disaster than triumph. Yes. Um, yes. you know, they want to talk about things going wrong much yes. more. Yes. Um, and, uh, but it resulted, you know, let's not underestimate the significance of this pandemic. It was a terrible disaster. Yes, of it course. did kill a lot of, of people. Course. And it, it was it, a bad illness. Yes. And a lot of things needed to be done to try and stop it. Yes. And, you know, particularly the vaccines were a great success story, at least initially, although they had, um, they weren't as good at preventing transmission as we'd hoped. Right. Um, certainly with but, the latest variants. Look, we've done it. We've done an okay job once we start, you stopped using a yeah. sledgehammer. Exactly. And, and, but, and started but, using a multi-pronged but, but approach, which if, we should have done at the beginning. But if we have learned from this pandemic, if. that the first thing you do in a crisis is hand the government a lot of rather draconian powers yeah. and have a small committee at the center tell everyone else what to do no, wrong. with the force of law yeah. and with enormous fines and punishments yeah. if you don't terrible. obey it. Terrible, terrible. Um, then Worse. I'm really quite scared for the world my kids are going to have to live in because yes. that isn't the way to run society. Right. And so are we going to – have we learned something? Are we going to put some limits on that for the next time? I, I, is, is there going to be a postmortem on this where we start to – at least through the courts, mill through the the uh, sort of limits of these powers. Well, I hope so, but I, I think the opposite lesson is being learned, Uh-oh. namely that if you are a, a prime minister or a president and you pass, you get a law passed saying you can do anything you like, and you're going to lock people up if they don't do what they're told. It's not very unpopular. In fact, it's quite popular. <laughs> but, that, but that's you weird. Know, that's weird. The, the, the opinion polls were what they were looking at. You know, the moment the opinion polls started saying, hang on, people want to be free, then they started backing off. But for a year and a half, because of the media telling everyone to be scared stiff, yeah. the public was very censorious about anybody who didn't wear a mask, who didn't take proper precautions, mm-hmm. who was... Uh, uh, not being sufficiently alarmist, mm-hmm. etc., mm-hmm. and so the, the 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 censorious public is telling the politicians through opinion polls that a very top-down and very dirigiste way of running the country is actually a electorally quite a successful strategy. I th- that's I a think, worrying development. I, I think that's a temp. I- that's t- we're now we're going back to the collective uh, processes of human culture. Well, this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter as much as everyone else does. Therapy is a great way to, well, just show up for yourself. Uh, You know I refer patients, family, others to BetterHelp, the care that people receive I've been very impressed with. And certainly in the day of COVID, people have learned they can deliver mental health services with electronic media and Less stigma. People don't worry about running into people in the waiting room, things like that. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't even want to. And certainly, again, 
not risk that discomfort of running into somebody in the waiting room. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. It can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and the Dr. Drew Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Drew. That is B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Drew. Well, crowd health isn't exactly insurance. That's why it works. With insurance, you pay huge premiums, high deductibles, which means on top of the thousands you pay to keep your plan, you end up paying even more. Crowd Health is putting the community back in community health care and giving its members access to high-quality care for up to 60% less in the process. One in six claims are denied by healthcare.gov plans. No wonder so many people choose to take their chances without insurance. With Crowd Health, you will pay one low monthly total to fund your account and get access to the Crowd Health community. 100% of your monthly contribution directly funds and reduces healthcare costs for the community. That's right. Unlike insurance, Crowd Health succeeds by keeping its member happy, not by driving up the price. It reverses the vicious incentives that got the healthcare system into the mess it is in in the first place. Don't let healthcare cost stand between you and your future. Join Crowd Health today. Right now, you can get your first six months for just $99 per month. That is almost 50% off the normal price and a lot less than a high deductible healthcare plan. Just go to joincrowdhealth.com. Use promo code Drew at sign up. That is joincrowdhealth.com, promo code Drew. Crowd Health is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for health care. Terms and conditions may apply. Well, you know that I love Bowl & Branch, love their sheets, love their towels. We sleep on them every night. Bowl & Branch signature sheets are so soft and light, you will forget you're not actually sleeping on a cloud, and they are sustainably made for uncompromising quality field to factory. That's right. They only use 100% sustainable raw material. They have buttery, soft, lightweight, organic cotton, classic satin weave for sheets that get softer over time. Not too hot, not too cold. Bull and Branch focuses on quality over quantity. Made to higher standards, 100% organic cotton, ethical production, and nothing worse than fitted sheets that don't fit. Bull and Branch offers 17-inch deep-fitted sheets and labeled size to help you make your bed beautifully every time. And for the Dr. Drew Podcast listeners, you can get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code Dr. Drew at checkout. That is Bolin Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch, B-R-A-N-C-H, BolinBranch.com, promo code Drew. Uh, that to me seems like something of the collective personality construct of the current historical moment because there's lots of narcissism and i would argue that we sort of tilted into histrionic where damn darn near well frankly delusional thinking started to kick in uh and that is not normal that, that's something uh, about them i don't think that's a normative human process uh, nor do I think is narcissism the, to the degree that we have it presently normal. I, I again, I worked in a psychiatric hospital back in the '80s, and I watched it start. We had, you know, they have these uh, uh, personality diagnoses as you come in the hospital. And back when I started there, there was a whole range A, B, and C categories. You know, there are three different clusters of personalities. Well, everyone's all over the place. By the early '90s. Everyone was cluster B. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone, which is narcissism, narcissism, sociopath, borderline. And it did not shift for the next 20 years. And when I started 
well, a couple of things happened. I started looking at all these patients. They're all childhood trauma. The, the magnitude of childhood trauma, particularly sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, was out of control. We had a pandemic of this uh, that we were moving through that was not normal, number one. Number two, the really interesting thing was uh, that the system was starting to shift to support the pathologies of this of this uh, uh, cluster, particularly borderline. I, I noticed in the 90s, every single borderline patient that came in the hospital had a minimum of 20 lawsuits under their belt. So the system had sort of begun to support the pathologies, and it's gone further in that direction ever since. Yeah. And, and that's that's concerning. That that is really concerning. We we have to sort of get get, get people with those sorts of disorders respond to. Maybe that's why the structure and the and the centralized authority felt good to them because they when they're contained they're actually better. But unfortunately, that containment included. Um, inciting delusional thinking, which I saw a lot of, but I'll let right. you comment. Yeah, right. that's that, that's very very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm always slightly surprised by how many people seem to think that every behavior that you might indulge in should be either compulsory or forbidden. Yeah, but there's no in between. <laughs> that, but that that kind of on off black white all in all out. Yeah, that, that's, exactly. that's that's a certain psychology. That's not a normal psychology. That, I, mean, that I remember is, having is, an argument with a with a um, a very prominent American philosopher a long time ago uh, along these lines, uh, and and we were talking about genetic testing. You know, mm. should people get themselves tested for uh, rare diseases when, when this was just becoming a possibility? Yeah. Um, and I said, yeah, I think great if they want to. And he said, so you think they should be compulsorily tested at birth? <laughs> said, no, 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 I didn't say that. I said, I said if, if they want to. Wow. He said, well, no, come on. You've either got to do it to everybody or nobody. I said, why? Why, why, can't, yeah. why can't people volunteer for these things if they want and not if they don't? And he, it just didn't compute for him. That's not fair. Well, the, that's the, not, the not fair is a primitive moral construct. That's not an advanced moral construct. It's a primitive moral construct. And I'm not your country, but this country is steeped in not fair. And I would argue not fair was driving a lot of the policies around testing and distribution of vaccines and then distribution of therapeutics. And you that's not – back to Adam Smith – that is no way to, for a culture to function. That, that is not allowing right. that, that decentralization efficiency to operate. It's the opposite. Not, not fair was, was the main reason we were given why we couldn't go down the route of, of, of focused protection. Yes. You know, of, of focusing the, the lockdown on the elderly and the vulnerable. That's right. While letting the young um, live more free lives. That would not be fair. We're all in this together. We've all got to do the same. And, you know, we got to the point where politicians were telling us in this country, this disease does not discriminate. Right. It's equally bad for everybody. Right. That just wasn't true. No. I mean, it was much worse for old people. 8,700 times more likely to die than a 20-year-old. 8,700. Right. I mean, come on. For, for what age? For an 85-year-old compared to a 19-year-old. Wow. Yeah. And, and the, the, the CDC has a, has a box up on their website that, that, that I think it takes 20 as, you know, as, as uh, the, 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 the – uh, what do you call it? The starting point, the unity, and then it goes on to both sides of that. And uh, 
in uh, documents of probability of hospitalization and death as you get older. And it's just off the chart, of course. Of course, off right. the chart. Well, it, it, this is all deeply concerning to me. And it's also mysterious to me that the whole world fell victim to this, which I get this country because I, I know how pathological things are here. Weird to me that the whole world fell for it. A, and then – and the other thing that, that as I you know was watching this all evolved – it was all founded on the policies and procedures of the CCP in Wuhan, exactly. China. And and, yep. and and that behavior that I saw right away that the press was lauding as the only approach, you know, with remember the trucks rolling down the street with chlorine squirting out of the front and stuff and locking people in the room. There's no me- there was no medical personnel on earth at that point that had thought of that as a treatment for infectious disease outbreaks. Nobody had ever. And it looked it looked rehearsed to me as though it was these were all ready at hand should there be an outbreak from I guess the lab in Wuhan. Now whether the outbreak was from the lab or not, it still looked like this ready to hand procedure was designed to suppress anything that broke out so no one else found out about it and also to impress their superiors in the CCP because, uh, hey, I took care of it. You know, it's like there are no doctors involved with that. There's no infectious disease personnel. Talk to me about that. Well, I think there is a disturbing degree of China envy um, that happened in the West quite early on. Uh, oh my God! Isn't that brilliant? They they locked everything down, and and you know you you've got remarks from long before the pandemic with people saying hey, the great thing about China is that because it's not a democracy, it can actually just do sensible policies right. quickly. Right, right, right. You, <laughs> I still hear is, that. I still hear that. <laughs> you still and, hear and that. And this exactly. is that centralization versus decentralization argument yeah, again. Yeah. yeah, and and uh, and and you're right. You know, if you uh, you know if you decide right, we're going to padlock this. Um, uh, residential block because it's got some cases in it um, and we won't let them out for three weeks. You can do that in that kind of country and there's no chance that the press will embarrass you, that the um, uh, the law courts will will come after you, you know. So there is a horrendous degree of unaccountability in an authoritarian system that is very attractive to people in power mm. and that to some degree is envied by people in power in the West. Wow. Um uh, that they don't have to worry about um, uh, being sued or losing uh, office, being voted out of office, or being criticised in the media. Wow. Um, and uh, I don't myself agree with you that it looks rehearsed, except in the sense that SARS had a huge impact on that country uh. in 2002-03, and the importance of eliminating that virus early uh. and the success in doing so, you know, 8,000 people infected, 800 dead, and then it stops. Mm. Even though people already caught planes to Canada with it and so on, they did manage it, tracing contacts and isolating them worked for SARS. It just wasn't that infectious. Mm. Um, as we now know, it didn't have a thing called a furian cleavage site in its spike gene, which is what makes SARS-CoV-2 so much more infectious. Um, and, and that Early elimination sort of seemed to work in Wuhan, actually. I mean, they did stamp it out at huge cost in terms of people's liberty and so on. But it's not working now with the much more infectious variants like Omicron. And so they've got a real problem, I but, think. But they, but they are doing – the one thing they are doing, though, is very localized, focused – 
isolations. You know, they're doing quarantine. What, what infectious disease has always been about? You, you take sick right. people, you quarantine them. You don't lock down a country. You don't take kids out of school. You you quarantine the locally. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, quarantine is as old as you know, yeah. it's centuries old as, you a, don't as a quarantine tactic. a country. That's the and weirdest thing. For some reason, we just wouldn't consider it. Uh, it wasn't fair. You said that a few minutes ago. You, you have to – everybody or nobody. That's the only way it's fair. I got COVID because I couldn't get the vaccine. I was running around the hospital where I worked trying to get it. And no, it's not fair for you to get it. You're not from the right part of town, and it wouldn't be fair. Even though I was taking care of COVID patients and I wanted to volunteer in the ER, they lost a volunteer in the ER because I became ill for three months. That's such stupid policy. Stupid. It's what it is. Stupid. Yeah. So let's spend the last few minutes, the origin. What are your thoughts? Right. Well, I've written this book with Alina Chan, a brilliant young molecular biologist and viral vector engineering expert at MIT and Harvard. And uh, we um, were both curious about the origin of this virus. And we were particularly curious about the fact that the problem didn't get solved quickly. It should have been. It was solved very quickly in the case of SARS. Um, They quickly found that uh, palm civets were giving it to people in markets and that's why food handlers were getting it. Uh, and that then they found very quickly that the palm civets were getting it from bats. It took them quite a long time to work out exactly which bats and where. But nonetheless, they had a they had a route for the virus to get into the human population pretty quickly. In May of 2020, it became clear that the same pattern had not turned up in this case because um, the CDC in China announced that all the animals they tested in that market. All the food samples tested negative. The only evidence of the virus in the market they could find was the human version of the virus on countertops and in the sewage and so on. And so it looked like the market was not the place where it had spread. And by the way, that's where we still are. There's been a couple of papers come out this week saying, oh, it definitely was the market because more of the cases were focused there than we thought. And some of them were near the stalls that were selling mammals. But I'm sorry, the very minimum you need to prove that it began in the market, as opposed to being amplified early on in the market, the very minimum you need is an infected animal. Um, And we haven't got that. So we thought that we, uh, Lena started saying very early, this virus is surprisingly well adapted to human beings from the start, unlike SARS, that was her discovery. And uh, it therefore looks like it might have been in human beings for some months. Could that have been in human cells in the lab, given that the laboratory that does more research on SARS-like coronaviruses from bats than anywhere else in the world is in Wuhan? This is the place to go if you want to study SARS-like coronaviruses in bats. Um, they've been working on it in, for in bats years or In there. bats or in human cells? Well, these are viruses that get out of bats and put into human cells and humanized mice. So the the record of their experiments is enormous, extensive, and and involves tens of thousands of viral samples collected from a long way away, not Mm. collected from nearby, Mm -hmm. um, mostly collected from Yunnan province in southwest China, which is where SARS is thought to have originated, And when they looked for the closest relative of SARS-CoV-2, when they first looked at its genome, it was in their own freezer at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Shocking. Um, They 
they called it uh, RATG13. Actually, they'd renamed it the day before because um, they didn't want us to work out where we where it had come from, which was a mine shaft where six people had got sick, three of them dying mm. um, six years before. Mm. Uh, it's not the cause of the disease, but it's a very close cousin of the cause of the disease. Mm-hmm. And then more recently, uh, a virus was found in Laos that is even closer. And that sounds interesting, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. This is not from... Wuhan, so that's more promising. Perhaps somebody travelled from Laos with it. Well, who travels from Laos to Wuhan? Mm. Scientists. Mm -hmm. That's who. The Wuhan Institute of Virology was taking samples from bats in Laos to Wuhan, Mm. not to Shanghai or Beijing or or Chengdu or, or Kunming or any of these other cities. Wuhan was where all these samples were going. So it's it's you know the 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 parallel. I like to give is 2007, a foot and mouth outbreak in England, in a place called Purbright in Surrey, um, just 13 miles from the world's leading foot and mouth reference laboratory. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, was that a coincidence? No. Mm. There was a leaking pipe at the lab. The contractor who mended it had gone to the farm. Where the where the animals caught the disease, yeah. So um, uh, it was very quickly established that that was the cause of the spread. So finding an outbreak of a SARS-like coronavirus in Wuhan is about as coincidental as finding an outbreak of foot and mouth in Purbright in Surrey. Yeah, yeah. All form makes great furniture and it just arrives at your door in boxes easiest to assemble and you go online you pick exactly which exact piece of furniture you like i got the eight peat sectional they have armchairs love seats there's something for everyone they are delivered as i said fast with free shipping that's right it could take weeks normally but no no not with all form and you don't need anybody to help you assemble it it's easy and you get to pick the base you want the this the the legs of the of the furniture you can pick the the material the colors everything and it looks exactly like you expect it fits great in our house and if getting a sofa without trying it in a store sounds risky you don't need to worry you get a hundred days to decide if you want to keep it that's more than three months and if you don't love it they will pick it up for free and give you a full refund they even offer a forever warranty, literally forever. Allform will even send you a free swatch kit so you can see all the different colors and fabrics they offer to see exactly what works with your style. To find your perfect sofa, and I mean perfect, check out allform.com slash Drew. That is A-L-L-F-O-R-M. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash Drew. Well, Master Spas, you're going to love the idea for family and friends. Get a Michael Phelps Swim Spa by Master Spas. A Michael Phelps Swim Spa combines the benefit of a pool with the therapy of a hot tub. Comes in many sizes. The Michael Phelps Swim Spas by Master Spas have water currents. You can swim, do exercises, fun with the kids, whatever it is. The buoyancy relieves pressure on aching joints. It's really it's aqua therapeutics. You can enjoy relaxation in the massage therapy seats of the swim spa. Michael Phelps Swim Spas are 100% made in the USA by Master Spas, the world's largest swim spa manufacturer. You're going to love it. Go to masterspas.com, 
Put in the promo code DREW to save $1,000 on a Michael Phelps swim spa or $500 on a Master Spas hot tub. That is Master Spas, plural, masterspas.com, promo code DREW. And there are actually some genetic footprints uh, on the genome, too. They're sort of astonishing, right? Just sort of- yeah, well, the, the, the big one and the one that, that, that um, very much worried a lot of senior virologists in private in the beginning of the pandemic, though they weren't good enough to share their concerns with us in public, um, is this thing called the furin cleavage site. It's what makes the virus so infectious, um, and uh, it's a... A, a fairly massive insertion into this virus compared with all its relatives. Uh, it's a 12 base pair insertion. Now that doesn't come about overnight by accident. That's a pretty big evolutionary change to get this bigger chunk of RNA into one of your genes. Mm-hmm. And at that point we say, right, well, could it have been put in artificially? Um, oh, and by the way, uh, you know, there was a prediction made right at the start Look, we're bound to find a wild virus with one of these in, these furin cleavage sites in, a closely related wild virus. No SARS-like virus has ever been found with this feature in right. it before. Right, and oh, they've or, found or they've, The one from Laos, the one from uh, uh, Yunnan, very closely related, no sign of a, a furin cleavage site. Yeah. What have scientists been doing increasingly in various parts of the world, including Wuhan in recent years, putting furin cleavage sites into viruses to make them easier to grow in the laboratory. Have they done that with a SARS-like virus? No, they've done it with a MERS-like virus at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But they did, we now know, and we didn't find this out till August 2021, they did put in a proposal to a grant funding body to put novel human cleavage sites into uh, novel uh, SARS-like coronaviruses. Uh, and the, you know, this was a, a team that was collaborating with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So uh, Alina's way of describing this is um, uh, we find that people are proposing to stick horns onto the heads of horses in Wuhan. And then a unicorn turns up in Wuhan, right. and we're supposed to say nothing to do with that project. Right. It's about that unusual. Right. And, and and why were they doing this? What? Why did they want to adjust the viruses in this manner? Well, it, it, the the reasoning is perfectly sound, although in retrospect somewhat uh, too risky. Um, the reasoning was they wanted to predict and prevent the next pandemic. Uh, the way to do that, they thought. And there was a big argument within virology about this. Some virologists said, this is not going to work. It's not going to be helpful and it's too risky. Others said, no, no, this is the right thing to do, is to go out and sample wildlife and find any virus that looks like ones that might cause a disease. There are millions of viruses out there, so it's Mm -hmm. going to be a hell of a task Mm -hmm. spotting the right one. But bring it back to the lab. Now, when you get it back to the lab, the chances are you're not going to be able to grow it in a cell on the laboratory bench. That's a pretty tricky thing to achieve, okay? It, most viruses are saying, hang on, I'm not in a bat. I, I don't see. know So how this to just allows human cell growth, essentially. So, so what they were wanting to do was, was make it easier to grow them in the lab. One mm. way to do that is to put a furin cleavage site in. Yeah. Another way is to swap the spike gene out of the new virus you found into a virus that you can grow Mm. And 
that way you can um, test what effect this spike gene has, uh, how dangerous it is. Mm -hmm. And that was the gain-of-function experiment mm. that they were doing right up till we know in 2018 they did a report that was secret, but it was eventually leaked, that in the Wuhan Institute of Virology they did this, and in some cases they caused a 10,000 times increase in the infectivity of the virus by doing that. So they were they were looking for a gas leak with a lighted match, we can now see in retrospect. But what they weren't doing was trying to come up with a bioweapon right, right. or trying to yeah. be dangerous or yeah. something. I don't Th think their so. motives were good. Yeah. There's no question about that. Yeah. But, but can we say this publicly now? Can we have public conversation, uh, scientific discourse about evidence? Only just. I mean, for the first year and a half, you couldn't say this on Facebook. You simply you speculate about that, and you were censored, quite literally. So crazy. You couldn't say it in the New York Times, where it was it would be labeled a debunked conspiracy theory to even Ugh. discuss the possibility of an accidental leak wow. from a laboratory. Not even the manipulation that I've been talking about. I'm yeah. talking about an accidental yeah. leak. Um, is, is your book uh, and, being received well? Yes and no. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, everybody who reads it who's not a scientist uh, raves to me about how much they love it. It's a gripping whodunit. Uh, it's fascinating. I had no idea, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. But most of the reviews by virologists were, how dare these two write this book speculating about the lab leak it's it's pernicious nonsense and of course the chinese um uh, authorities have called me a notorious liar um but haven't specified any actual lies of course that wow. would be going too far um but uh so um we're in a guerrilla war with people who do not want the lab leak to be properly discussed i mean they say they do but then they they never engage in discussion about it. And why the virologists? Why why are they having such an issue with this? You think well, they'd be the most because go ahead because they feel that their whole field is threatened, the reputation oh. is threatened, the funding is threatened. They feel that if if this is proved, if it becomes conventional wisdom that this thing leaked out of a laboratory, mm -hmm. um, you know, then somebody who's been doing these kinds of experiments is in some trouble. He's going to face more regulation. He's going to face a cut in his funding, uh, and he may, uh, you know, eventually uh, face uh, disapproval from other people. That's a pretty big disincentive, you know. Mm. Don't don't underestimate the degree to yeah, which yeah. people will will, will think. Um, I just don't want this to be true. At and least, therefore, it, I'm going to yeah. I'm going to seek out every bit of evidence that it's not. At least, we're not saying that definitely is what happened. Yeah, we still yeah. think the market leak is possible. Yeah, of course. But what, what we're very frustrated by is that the Chinese. Um, scientists won't give us the information that would rule one or other out. I mean, they could easily rule out the lab leak That's right. by showing us what was in their database yeah. and showing that they did not have a virus closely related to this in the lab. I mean, the one they've shown us so far is not, not close enough, um, but they will not show us what's in their database. So we do not know which viruses they were working on after 2016 um, uh, it, that that database went offline in September 2019, and it's never come back on. And they will not give us a reasonable excuse for why they won't show us what's in that database. Right? Uh, you know that database exonerates them you, if there's nothing not. in it. Yeah, right. Uh, so it's, so that's what you call a tell. And then the virologists have a at least a bias that's affecting their thinking. So uh, interesting. You would think it's as scientists they try to 
at least point out their own biases in their thinking, but who knows? Well, listen, uh, Viscount, we, we have to – do I call you Viscount Ridley or do I call you Matt or where, where are we at in our relationship now? You can call me whatever you like, but you can call me Matt. Okay, Matt. Uh, I appreciate this. This has been a really interesting conversation. I appreciate you spending some time with us. I look forward to reading the book. All of you should – Go out and read this. You, you. Not only is it a, as you said, a thrilling whodunit. You, you need to be aware of this information because you're going to get engaged in conversation with people about this for sure. And you want to arm yourself with what's available. And the book is viral: the search for the origin of COVID nineteen. Available now on Amazon. Uh, Matt did it with Alina Chan. And uh, one more time, the website for Matt is Matt Ridley R I D L E Y dot C O dot U K. And uh, Matt, I hope to talk to you again soon. This, there's a lot more I want to talk about with, uh, I guess you ran, want a Hayek prize, and I'm interested in Mr. Hayek and how he's faring these days. This is back to that centralization, decentralization conversation on a more formal yeah. scale. Um, uh, but I thank you for spending some time with us. But by the way, do I call you doctor if you call me Viscount? Uh, if you if if I if I'm if I'm uh, insisted on calling you Viscount, yes. But I'm calling you Matt. So you call me Drew. So I can call you Drew. Yeah, please. Thank you, Drew, very much. Fair enough. All right, we'll talk soon. And we'll see you all next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Watch Yellowstone for free on Pluto TV. All this weekend, Pluto TV is streaming a marathon of seasons one to three of Yellowstone, the show the rap calls a smash hit series. Pluto TV also has hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and TV shows like Mission Impossible 3, Gladiator, CSI, and more. Absolutely free. So download the free Pluto TV streaming app and watch Yellowstone seasons one to three free.